is Our American Stories, and we love music here on Our American Stories. We love it so much that we have a separate This Day in Music History. Take it away, Jesse. Well, be she's This day in music history, 1956, Gene Vincent recorded the classic rock and roll song Bebopalua at Owen Bradley's studio in Nashville, Tennessee. The song went on to be a U.S. and U.K. Top 20 hit that year. Vincent said that he wrote the words to the song after being inspired by a comic strip called Little Lulu. And in 1959, born on this day in music history, country superstar Randy Travis... Since 1985, he's recorded 20 studio albums and charted over 20 number one hits. Well, I've heard those city singers singing about how they can love Deeper than the oceans, higher than the stars above Well, I come from the country and I know I ain't seen it all but I heard that ocean salty and the stars they sometimes fall My love is deeper than the holler Stronger than the river Higher than the pine trees growing tall upon the hill My love Here's is Randy Travis with five things you might not know about Randy Travis My first car was truck it was a 65 Chevy truck. I rolled it three times. People probably do not know this about me. I'm a fine dancer. Oh gosh, like rap music? That's probably two. I'm a fine dancer. Love rap music. I love ice cream. Yeah. I love ice Sound like... Um, Billy Bob Thornton and uh, uh, Sling Blade, didn't it? Yeah, I love ice cream. Mm-hmm. Just vanilla ice cream with hot fudge. Mm-hmm. He'd probably suspect it, but um, I love to laugh. I can laugh at myself. Hey, you might as well learn to laugh at yourself because everybody else going to laugh at you. I love to touch people. And, you know, I thank God for the ability to do this. In this day in music history, 1961, the Marcells were number one of the UK singles chart with the Rogers and Hart song from the 1930s, Blue Moon. The record reached number one on the Billboard pop chart for three weeks and number one on the R&B chart. The song is featured in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. On a Sunday afternoon. And in 1967, the Young Rascals started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. charts with Groovin'. Atlantic Records had Jerry Wexler did not want to release the song. But U.S. disc jockey Murray the K heard the track and encouraged Atlantic to release it. The single became an instant hit in May of 67, spending four weeks on the top of the Billboard singles pop chart, but not for four consecutive weeks. The sequence was interrupted by Aretha Franklin's Respect, which spent a week at number one in the middle of Groovin's run. The song was certified gold the following month of that same year. And in 1973, this day in music history, Led Zeppelin opened their 1973 North American tour, which was billed as the biggest and most profitable rock and roll tour in the history of the United States. The group would gross over $4 million flying between gigs in the Starship, a Boeing 720 passenger jet complete with a bar, 
TV and video, a big deal back in the day, a lounge and a white fur bedroom. And this day in music history, 1986, Atlantic Records founder Amit Erdogan announced that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame would be built in Cleveland, Ohio. The very first group of inductees included Elvis Presley, James Brown, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, and Jerry Lee Lewis. But the very first inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? The one and only Chuck Berry. And in 1988, born on this day in music history, English superstar singer-songwriter Adele. Never would have hitchhiked to Birmingham if it hadn't been for love. I never would have called the train to Louisiana if it hadn't been for love. I never would have run through the blinding rain when that one dollar to my name if it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for love. After graduating from the Brit School of Performing Arts and Technology in 2006, Adele was given a recording contract by XL Recordings after a friend posted her demo on MySpace that same year. Her debut album, 19, was released in 2008 to commercial and critical success. It's certified seven times platinum in the UK and three times in the US. Here's Adele talking about her personal life and the price that comes with a life of fame. My life's still wonderful and it's still blossoming and all that but I just feel like the yeah the bigger your career gets the smaller your life gets you know some people get quite phased by someone's success so I had to sort of be a bit like distance myself from a lot of people that I've known my whole life and just make my circle a bit smaller and that's this day in music history for our American stories I'm Jesse Edwards and as always great job on that Jesse and by the way we do so much on music. Go to our story of a song and just, well, you'll be dazzled. There's so many great ones. Another Brick in the Wall, uh, Gimme Shelter, and many, many more, including my favorite, David Bowie and Bing Crosby, the making a little drummer boy. We're going to go out with, well, one of our favorite singers, Adele, singing one of our favorite singers, singing one of our favorite singer-songwriters' songs, and it's Chris Stapleton and the Steel Drivers. And take a listen. If it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for love, yeah, yeah. If it hadn't been, if it hadn't been.
This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Led Zeppelin and the voice of Robert Plant. And in this very special best of hour on music, and we love music here on Our American Stories, we dug into the story of Robert Plant, the man, and his musical inspiration, particularly after the breakup of Led Zeppelin. We also play some choice selections of Plant performing, most notably, I Bid You Good Night, a beautiful gospel song that, well, he'd wanted to play his whole life, but never did until fairly recently. you babe so I'm gonna put you down for a while Led Zeppelin's music was rooted in the American South, and blues specifically. That's Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, and John Bonham's take on the great Willie Dixon classic, and it appeared on their very first record. The band formed in 1968, made only nine studio recordings, all of which made it to the top ten on the Billboard charts. And they sold, get this, 110 million records. The band suffered a huge setback, though, when their drummer, John Bonham, died. And it wasn't long before the band died. They called it quits in 1980. Robert Plant soon found himself out of a job as the lead singer of the world's biggest band. And my goodness, he had no idea what to do next. He talked about the next steps in his journey as an artist. I knew when I was 32 and Led Zeppelin finished, and I was just standing there going, wow, I suppose that's a lot then, you know. Um, I'll, perhaps I'd better do a bit of dry stone walling or something like that, you know. Uh, how about being a steeplejack, you know, or if I like the heights. So I was always sort of wobbling around. Like a lot of artists, wobbling around. Plant spoke about the music that inspired him, the music that drove Zeppelin and also the Rolling Stones, their compatriots, and so many other, well, British boys. When I was a kid, I was, uh, like so many people of my generation, we were really moved by the, the deep soul of black American music from Mississippi, from uh, moving, you know with development and industry up into Chicago and Detroit, down to New Orleans where nothing really, it was another world, it wasn't even America. But British kids of my age really were so transfixed by the change and by the dynamic of a black culture that we really, really were, um, these guys became instant heroes. They may have been unsavory, they may have been unlucky, they may have been hellhounds, they could have been anything, but basically they were, they were, there was an allure to the music of the black American which kept us going. As time passed and Plant continued to explore different musical styles, he returned again to the American South. But instead of blues music being the inspiration, he rediscovered the roots music he grew up with in England. I found that there was more stuff 
underneath the covers mm. going on and it was still coming from Ireland and, pla and places in Tennessee and in the mountains where people just hadn't moved on families lived there for five generations without shifting from one township so the music followed down through the families and we got really old songs there well after multiple Grammys with Alison Krauss Plant described the band he formed in 2010 a band with Buddy Miller, Daryl Scott, Patty Griffin, among others. He'd traveled a long way, Plant, a long way from those electrified sounds of Led Zeppelin. There's loads of ways of skinning a cat, really, and um, I just think that the I mean, the band of joy here is, there are six voices on this. So sometimes when we hit something like Gallows Pole, uh, it is virtually entirely, apart from a banjo intro, it's a cappella. And it, like you can believe. The 80s and 90s were barren periods for Robert Plant. He said, what I did not want to do again was become a Robert Plant cover band. There were too many better ones than me. So struggling for the new identity that matched where he was in his life is always the artist's struggle. You get some silver, you get a little gold. For what did you bring me, my dear friend, to keep me from the gallows ball? Well, here is Plant in a concert performed in 2010 for the BBC. It was with his band of joy, and it's a beautiful example of Plant, quote, living out a song. Now, you know... I finally got my way after uh, so many thousands of years of saying, why don't you finish the show with a song that says everything? And uh, I tried to sell the idea to a few people down the line, but we've got it now, so. <laughs> lay down, my dear sister. Won't you lay and take your rest? Won't you lay your head upon my Savior's breast? But I love you, but Jesus loves you the best. And I bid you good night, good night, good night. Oh, I bid you good night, good night, good night. One of these mornings bright and early and fine. Good night, good night. Not a cricket, not a soul to slow me down. Good night.
sister, won't you lay and take your head? Won't you lay your head upon the Savior's breast? Cause I love you, and Jesus loves you the best. And I'll bid you good night, good night. I was walking in Jerusalem just like John. Good the bad boy of rock and roll singing the song he'd wanted to sing all his life on the stage never having felt comfortable in his own skin and having a bunch of bandmates who thought it utterly ridiculous to sing a song so beautiful and have you ever heard something so beautiful from Robert Plant sometimes you need to be in your 60s to figure out who you are I bid you good night well we looked it up We tried to find the writer. There isn't one. Like so many great old gospel songs, it's just a traditional ballad. He had heard it in the hills of Scotland, and how many young people had heard it in the hills of Appalachia? No difference. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Robert Plant, his art, his music, and so utterly connected to the American story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. We'll be right back. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Gimme Shelter, and you're hearing, well, in this particular case, Mary Clayton singing in the background. Lisa Fisher does the honors on the road. Rape, murder, it's just a shot away. It's the story of a song you've got to take a listen to, and you can go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org, drop down the story of the song, and pick Gimme Shelter, and you will hear a heck of a story about how that song became that song. And by the way, we've done this for Jesus Take the Wheel. We've done this for Another Brick in the Wall. Why Me, My Lord by Chris Christofferson. We did it for Closing Time. We did it for There Goes My Life, the Kenny Chesney smash. We even did it for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And you're about to hear the story of an unlikely couple coming together to perform a Christmas song turned Christmas song staple for Bing Crosby's 1977 Merry Old Christmas special. And by the way, we deplore the playing of Christmas music in any other month, but... Christmas month, and that, of course, is December. But we're going to make an exception here, because in our very best-of special, one of our favorite stories of song happened to be this one. Combining the old Bing Crosby with the new David Bowie would assume to be like mixing oil and water. But it somehow worked. No, it worked beautifully. The mature Bing Crosby had the perfect, deep, rich voice, while Bowie added a variant 
in the foreground. Once you hear this story and listen to the duo sing the song, it will forever touch your heart, and the little drummer boy will forever be appreciated on an entirely different level. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go One of the most successful duets in Christmas music history and surely the weirdest might never have aired if it weren't for some last-minute musical surgery. David Bowie thought the little drummer boy was all wrong for him. So when the producers of Bing Crosby's Christmas TV special asked Bowie to sing it, he refused. Just hours before he was supposed to go before the cameras, though, a team of composers and writers frantically retooled the song. They added another melody and new lyrics as a counterpoint to all those perumpa pum pums and called it Peace on Earth. Bowie liked it. More important, Bowie sang it. The result was an epic and epically bizarre recording in which 30-year-old David Bowie the androgynous Ziggy Stardust joined in song. Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with web and gilly, and the spiders were lost. Joining him was none other than Mr. White Christmas himself, 73-year-old Bing Crosby. How did this almost surreal mashup of the mainstream and the avant-garde of cardigan-clad 40s-era crooner and glam rocker happen? Bing's teenage children, who were on set for the recording, recalled the interaction. The doors opened and David walked in with his wife, said Mary Crosby. They were both wearing full-length mink coats. They had matching full makeup and their hair was bright red. We were thinking, oh my God. To in the snow. Bing's son, Nathaniel Crosby, added, It almost didn't happen. The producers told him to take the lipstick off and take the earring out. It was just incredible to see the contrast. The show's co-writer, Buzz Cohen, worked some of the intergenerational awkwardness into his script. In a little skit that precedes the singing, Crosby greets Bowie at the door of what looks like Dracula's castle. Actually, it's a set that's supposed to be Crosby's rented London home. The conceit is that Bowie is dropping by a friend's house and finds Crosby at home one snowy afternoon. Hello. You're the new butler. <laughs> what? It's been a long time since I've been the new anything. What's happened to uh, Hudson? I guess he's changing. Yeah, he does that a lot, doesn't he? Um, I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh. Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him, but come on in. Come yes. in. But, uh, come on in. Are you related to Sir Percival? Well, distantly, yeah. Oh, you're not the uh, poor relation from America, right? Ha! <laughs> Gee, news sure travels fast, doesn't it? I'm Bing. Oh, I'm pleased to meet you. You're the one that sings, right? Well, right or wrong, I sing either way. Oh, well, I sing too. Oh, good. 
Fellow co-writer Larry Grossman recalls the initial encounter. We had decided that we wanted them to do a duet of a little drummer boy. And when we told Bowie about the number, he said, I won't sing that song. Uh, and we said, why? He said, I hate that song. He said, if I have to sing that song, I, I, I can't do the show. And he said, also, I'm doing the show because my mother loves Pink Crosby. Cohen remembers leaving the set and finding a piano in the studio's basement. We decided the best way to salvage the arrangement was to do a counter melody that would fit in between the spaces and maybe write a new bridge and see if we can sell them that. And it all happened rather rapidly. I would say within an hour, we had it written and were able to present it to him again. Watching in the wings, the Crosby kids notice a transformation. They sat at the piano, and David was a little nervous, Mary Crosby recalled. But tell me, uh, you ever listen to any of the older fellas? Oh, yeah, sure. I like uh, John Lennon and the other one with uh, Harry Nelson. Ooh, you go back that far, huh? Yeah, I'm not as young as I look. <laughs> None of us is these days. Dad realized David was this amazing musician. And David realized Dad was an amazing musician. You could see them both collectively relax. And then, magic was made. Bowie and Crosby recorded the duet September 11th, 1977 for Crosby's Merry Old Christmas TV special. A month later, Crosby was dead of a heart attack. The special was broadcast on CBS about a month after his death. And that was almost that. We never expected to hear about it again, Cohen said. But in the intervening years, the Bowie Crosby Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy, has been transformed from an oddity into a holiday chestnut. I play my This day in history. And may all your Christmases be white. And thanks as always, Greg does those pieces so well. Anytime you're hearing our our American Network narrator, you can pretty much guess Greg wrote the script and put it together. And we love stories of the song. Again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and then go to Topics. And down in Topics, you'll see it right there, Story of the Song. And we've got a dozen plus, plus our hours on Frank Sinatra, an hour on Elvis, an hour on, my goodness, just so much. We did Kurt Cobain. Uh, we did Miles Davis, Rostropovich, the, uh, the conductor. Classical music, country music, my favorite Merle Haggard. Uh, when he died, we did an hour, and it was spectacular, his music. And we heard from him, too, from the grave, his life, his regrets, his loves. 
This is Lee Habib, and what we love, and we never regret, is playing music as much as we can. This is Our American Stories. stories and you're listening to Janis Joplin covering Chris Christopherson's greatest song me and Bobby McGee and what a collaboration that was and we're continuing our story of a song series here in a celebration the best of our best stories of song now, this one centers around Chris Christopherson and a song he recorded back in 1972 called why me Lord and it was his lone major Country hit, by the way. It reached number one on the country charts in 1973. And here in this particular story you're about to hear, Chris Christopherson is sitting on a stage. Willie Nelson is sitting next to him. A couple of other singer-songwriters. It's sort of like one of those ASCAP things we bring to you where folks are explaining why they wrote the songs they wrote and performing other people's songs. Happens a lot in Nashville the Bluebird Cafe is famous for this. If you ever get a chance and you're in Nashville, go to the Bluebird and you'll hear great songwriters celebrating other songwriters and you'll never know and never will know who will come up on that stage on any given night and you won't believe the talent that you'll hear on those stages. Here he tells the story of how he came to the song, Why Me, Lord? And, well, something was stirring in his soul and heart. We've been down in Cookville with a bunch of people doing a benefit for uh, for Dottie West's uh, high school band or something. Then uh, Connie uh, took me over to to church the next day to to Jimmy Snow's church. Uh, I, I had a profound uh, religious experience uh, during during uh, the the session. Something that I hadn't never had happened to me before and uh and uh why me came out of it everybody was kneeling down and uh and uh jimmy said uh uh something like if if anybody's lost please raise their hand and i was i was kneeling there and i don't go to i don't go to church a lot and uh and uh the notion of raising my hand was uh, out of out of the question, <laughs> and I thought uh, I, I can't imagine who's doing this. And all of a sudden, I felt my hand going up, and I was hoping nobody else was looking because everybody was had their head over, bent over, uh, praying. And then he said, uh, "If if anybody's ready to accept Jesus, something like this, uh, come down to the front of the." of the church and uh, uh, I thought that would never happen 
And, uh, and uh, I found myself getting up and walking down with all these people and going down there. And, and I don't really know what he said to me. He said something to me like, are you ready to accept uh, Jesus Christ in your life or something? And I said, I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was doing there. And he put me down, <laughs> said, kneel down here. And, and he, uh, I, I can't even remember what he was saying, but whatever it was, was such a release for me that I, I find myself weeping in public <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, I felt the, this uh, forgiveness that I didn't that I didn't know I even needed. Then Christofferson and this small group with some musicians. By the way, one of them was next to him. His name's Willie Nelson. They performed the song. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? there have been a whole bunch of people who've recorded this song. Elvis Presley among them. He incorporated it into his set with the song Why My Lord back in 1974 in January and then right up until his last concert tour. It was first released on the live album Elvis recorded live on stage in Memphis. The recording is from his March 20, 1974 concert in Memphis, Tennessee. He often introduced the song for J.D. Sumner, to sing one of his favorite songs. Sumner would sing the verses, and Elvis would then join in the chorus. Let's take a listen. Thank you. I'd like to ask J.D. Sumner to stay up to sing one of my favorite songs, Why Me, Lord?
And the favorite version here at Our American Stories involves two of our favorites from two very different walks of life, two different styles of music, the great Johnny Cash and the great Ray Charles. And with that, another story of the song, Chris Christopherson's song. You heard Elvis do it. My goodness, so many people did. Let's listen to Ray and let's listen to Johnny do it. our American stories, the story of a song, and this one, Why Me, by Chris Christopherson, and let's take it back, gospel being at the root of so much of American music. Let's listen to Ray Charles, play those keyboards, and hear Johnny Cash take it out. This is Our American Stories.
This is a special best of edition of Our American Stories. We love telling stories about our veterans, stories of service, valor, and love, but we're not afraid to also touch on the darker and more tragic aspects of our veterans' lives. We recently brought you Jonathan McConnell's story. He's a former Marine infantry officer who served two combat tours in Iraq and recently wrote a piece in The Federalist entitled A Look Inside a Combat Veteran's Transition to Civilian Life. If you want to understand the highs and lows many of our veterans go through, read this piece. Overall, Jonathan remembers his experience as a Marine fondly. I often say it's the greatest honor I've ever had in my life, you know, to this point. Um, I, I say that cautiously because my, my wife is, uh, is, we are expecting our first child, a boy, uh, so I have to say that extremely cautiously, and I think that will overtake as the greatest honor I've ever had. But, you know, leading American sons into battle, uh, being able to see what these young Marines will do, you know, 18, or actually 17 to 22-year-old kids, men who are out there and who will literally give their life for the Marine on their right or left. I've watched where Marines have... Literally, we start taking small small arms fire, and Marines just all of a sudden it's the immediate actions that step in, and you have once you know one fire team starts laying down a base of fire, while the other two fire teams start maneuvering, and you execute fire maneuver, where they start maneuvering towards gunfire that just came in their direction. It's the greatest honor in the entire world to see something like that, to lead Marines who are so selfless and who only care about you know the the, the Marine on their right and their left. It's just chilling to even think about, you know, what those guys do and, and how selfless they are. You look at them now, and, and we, we come back into society that we're in now that we're not exactly so selfless. You know, we're, uh, it, it's an interesting society, and I think that's why so many guys have trouble adapting. And think about how much of a mindset and experience gap there is between a 20-year-old who's regularly advanced into gunfire to close with an enemy and a 20-year-old whose greatest stresses are pop quizzes by day and Tinder by night. So it's not surprising that for many veterans, conversation with family, friends, and even casual acquaintances can be awkward at best. Jonathan writes something in his Federalist piece that directly addresses that point. To the families and friends of veterans, my advice is to shut up and listen. Importantly, don't ask questions you can't accept an answer to. If you ask what the worst experience a veteran had was, which is not a question I advise asking, Don't gasp and look at us like we just kicked a puppy. It's war. It's hell. It happens. Don't damn us to live it in perpetuity. Talk about that. You know, I've been asked numerous times, you know, about the war. And it's, you know, we're we're not a toy. You don't sit there and put us on the ground and press play. And so many times that would happen. And, um, you know, and whether it was a, a family get-together and someone asked, you know, hey, what was the best thing about being in Iraq? And I just kind of looked at him, and, you know, and I was still dealing with the death of a Marine, and I was just like, well, what the hell do you think was the best thing about being in Iraq? I don't know. Like, I got toilet paper? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, the days that, that a mail would come and we would get wet wipes. I mean, that was pretty amazing. You got to take a bath then. Um, and, and so that was something that, you know, we struggled with. And then some people, you know, for some odd reason, the first question they would ask is, did you lose any of your Marines or did you, did you ever have to kill anyone? And, you know, and, and often you would just say, you know, hey, uh, you know, uh, you just tell them one of the worst stories you could come up with that you remembered. And then at that point they would look at you like you just kicked a puppy or that you, you know, clubbed a seal right in front of them. And you're like, well, hey, you asked. Um, and it's, it's, you know, the times that I've ever opened up to talk about it voluntarily is usually it's on my terms. You know, if you're just hanging out with people that you love, that know are going to love you regardless of what you tell them um, and how atrocious it is or whatever, 
and you tell them about it, and you hope that they don't look at you and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. Um, and as you just say, you, you know, you, the response you want is like, hey, th- thanks for telling me that. I know that was tough to deal with. Not, um, we don't need people to tell us how horrible it was. We know. We live with it every day. Um, you know, but just um, instead of responding and saying, like, that's awful. How did y'all do that? Or how could y'all do that? If you understood the scenario that, that evolved around it, it's, it's not easy. And for many veterans, readjusting to civilian life is hard, even if they're surrounded by supportive folks who don't ask what their worst experience in war was. Combat veterans have plenty to process inside their own minds. One of the hardest moments that I ever had um, was stepping off that bus when I came home. I, I wasn't, I mean, I loved that my family was there and it meant a lot to me, but the whole time it was, you know, the the stress of having to meet the mother of one of my Marines who didn't come home and, and hand her his dog tags. And, you know, she was the most gracious woman in the entire world and, and gave us all big hugs and, and uh, was very, very sweet. And to this day, we stay in contact with her. We annually, we've started doing a, a retreat um, with where everybody uh, spends a weekend together. And she always comes and is basically she lost one son, but she gained another 60. Um, and, and that's how she looks at it. And she's, she leads us uh, and is, you know, is more beneficial to us than we are to her, I'm sure of it. But, you know, that survivor's guilt is still there. And, and it would be years that I would, you know, just be sitting there and just break down and just, you know, wondering why, why did I make it, but, you know, he did not. And, um, and that's something that, you know, we think about constantly. And it's just it, it, you can't explain it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that, um, you know, I, I'm a believer. I'm, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian most of my life. And I, I still have not found where God's role is in war. And you cannot explain some things that happen. And you just have to trust that, hey, there's a reason I'm still alive. But to me, I use it as an opportunity just to, to work harder and to, to be better and, and live the life that he doesn't get to live. I'm going to live it in his place. and I'm going to work harder and be successful in his place. The survivor's guilt combined with other mental and physical trauma can lead to depression, PTSD, and all too often suicide. Since coming home, Jonathan's battalion has lost almost half as many Marines to suicide as they did in combat overseas. The last funeral I went to uh, was last summer, and with one of the Marines who had um, who had essentially drank himself to death. You know, you look around at the maybe 40 of us that went to that funeral, and you're like, okay, well, who are the survivors still? You know, we're all still survivors, and who are going to make it, or who's next? You know, and you look around, and you're like, you know, I can picture those three as being next. Or, or how's this person doing? And it's a great opportunity for us to kind of check ourselves and to reach out to each other, and you know it's beneficial. And But there are some of the guys there that you're like, I won't be surprised if within the next year I get a phone call that, that he's, he was the one who was next. And, you know, and so we try to reach out to those guys, and we try to get ways to get them to come to our reunion and, and to talk to people. But, but some know that's what we're doing, and so they, they keep us at an arm's distance. You know, it's a struggle that we fight every day. I can tell you that I'm in a great spot. Haven't been in a better spot, I don't think, before in my life right now. Just happiness, especially with a little boy coming and being married, you know, love life. Uh, but I'm looking at some of the other Marines who are just really struggling right now. And, um, you know, and, and we try to check in with them, but it, it's just tough. And to hear more of our hour-long interview with Jonathan McConnell, a Marine veteran, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Fly me to 
the moon Let me play among the stars And let me see what spring is like On a Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me This is Our American Stories. Welcome to our very special best of hour. And we love to tell stories about just about everything. And we love it when you or our fans or friends tell us stories back. And we have a little story to tell about how we met this particular guy and friend of the show and quite a character. And uh, Alex is a Chicagoan and I'm from New Jersey. And together we were up in Chicago and we were meeting with some folks talking about this or that. And in came this guy named Bob. And and Alex, I mean, do you remember, I mean, the day Bob came into that meeting? He just crashed this meeting. Yeah, we were in the middle of a pitch. We were talking to someone, actually trying to you know accomplish something. This dude walks in with a fishing cap and multicolored socks and just <laughs> sat down at the table acting like he was invited. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, took over the room. I mean, he just started telling jokes and everything else. And when the pitch was over, it didn't go too well. We didn't end up really succeeding. Actually, but the gentleman passed away the next year. It's kind of sad. Well, that is kind of sad. And by the way, a story all by itself, the gentleman who passed. But my goodness, Bob then invites us out to have a beer and then a second beer. And as happens so often in American life. He doesn't even drink. I don't drink. I don't drink. But Alex enjoyed my beers. And uh, in, 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 in other times that we got our way into Chicago, he took us to a place called Tofano's, to Tofano's in Little Italy. And my goodness, what great food. It's a place where... Folks who love the Blackhawks crash. Uh, it's pretty close to the United Center, but it's not hoity-toity. It's old-school Italian. Big bar. Have their lemon chicken if you ever get to Tofano's. It was featured on diners, drive-ins, and dives. It's an all-cash joint, and they got that old Italian feel. There's the old lady back there stirring the big pot of sauce, and that's an official Italian restaurant to Italians. And so Bob, well, he told us a story of his own, a story about... Well, about two different people, and you're about to hear their stories right now. Take it away, Bob. Let me tell you two stories about two men who come from my town, Chicago. Chicago, the Windy City, long home to colorful citizens. Story number one. Many years ago, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago. Beginning as a two-bit bootlegger, Alphonse Scarface Capone rose through the ranks of the Southside Rackets to become king of the underworld. Capone wasn't famous for anything heroic. He was notorious for enmeshing the Windy City in everything from bootleg booze and prostitution to murder. Capone had a lawyer named Easy Eddie. He was his lawyer for a good reason. Eddie was very good. He was terrific. He was the best. In fact, Eddie's skill at legal maneuvering kept Big Al out of jail for a long time. To show his appreciation, Capone paid him very well. Not only was the money big, but Eddie got special dividends. No, I'd go from rags to riches. For instance, he and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live-in help 
and all the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled an entire Chicago city block. Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob and gave little consideration to the atrocity that went on around him. Eddie did have one soft spot, however. He had a son that he loved dearly. Eddie saw to it that his young son had the best of everything. Clothes, cars, and a good education. Nothing was withheld. Price was no object. And despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. Eddie wanted his son to be a better man than he was. Yet with all his wealth and influence, there were two things he couldn't give his son. He couldn't pass on a good name and a good example. One day, Easy Eddie reached a difficult decision. Easy Eddie wanted to rectify wrongs he had done. He decided he would go to the authorities and tell the truth about Al Scarface Capone, clean up his tarnished name, and offer his son some semblance of integrity. To do this, he would have to testify against the mob, and he knew that the cost would be great. So he testified. Within the year, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. But in his eyes, he had given his son the greatest gift he had to offer at the greatest price he would ever pay. Story number two. World War II produced many heroes. One such man was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. One day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. After he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Return to the ship. Over. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation and headed back to the fleet. Yeah, roger that. As he was returning to the mothership, he saw something that turned his blood cold. A squadron of Japanese aircraft was speeding their way toward the American fleet. The American fighters were gone on a sortie and the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron and bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he warn the fleet of the approaching danger. There was only one thing to do. He must somehow divert them from the fleet. All right, let's do this. Laying aside all thoughts of personal safety, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes. Wing-mounted 50 calibers blazed as he charged in, attacking one surprise enemy plane and then another. Butch wove in and out of the now broken formation and fired at as many planes as possible until all his ammunition was finally spent. Undaunted, he continued the assault he dove at the planes, trying to clip a wing or tail in hopes of damaging as many enemy planes as possible and rendering them unfit to fly. 
Finally, the exasperated Japanese squadron took off in another direction. Oh my God, I'm alive! I did it! Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and related the event surrounding his return. The film from the gun camera mounted on his plane told the tale. It showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He had in fact destroyed five enemy aircraft. This took place on February 20th, 1942, and for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace of World War II and the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. For heroism and extraordinary achievement in aerial flight, for distinguished service as pilot of an airplane of a bombing squad, his courageous actions were in keeping with the highest tradition of the United States. A year later, Butch was killed in aerial combat at the age of 29. His hometown would not allow the memory of this World War II hero to fade and today, O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named in tribute to the courage of this great man. So the next time you find yourself at O'Hare International, give some thought to visiting Butch's memorial displaying his statue and his Medal of Honor. It's located between Terminals 1 and 2. So what the hell do these two stories have to do with each other? Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. And thanks for that, Bob, and great job on the mix on that, Joey. And that's what our team does. You're listening to a very special best of here on Our American Stories. And, Bob, we owe you some Tefanos. In Chicago's Little Italy, the next time we're in town, if you're listening, I hope you're not listening, because then we got to pay again. This is Our American Stories. This could take all night. Think I need a devil to help me get things right. Hook me up a new revolution. This one is a This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our special best of our faith stories from the villages is what we're turning to next. And the villages is the largest retirement community in the country, and on one of her trips she was able to attend an honor flight, which is an opportunity to recognize and honor our brave veterans of World War II. And while Faith was waiting for it to start, she spoke with World War II veteran Donald. She first noticed him when he got up in front of a crowd, picked up his cane, and began dancing. She knew she needed to talk to him. Here's how that conversation went. We began by talking about his dancing and when he got his dancing skills. I go ballroom dancing, too. I had a music start. I can dance for three hours. Uh, I lived about, there's a boy about 50 miles from uh, Manhattan. 
I had two uncles in vaudeville. They would come in, they used to tour the whole country, Chicago, Los Angeles. They'd come in New York, they'd always visit my parents. And they would do their show for me or the family. So when I was like a little 10-year-old kid, I'm watching, and they taught me to dance, so I just did that. Then I was able to ask Donald how he got into the military. Being a kid from upstate New York, who loved to dance? Uh, I was in a merchant marine. Uh, my brother was a captain, a sea captain in a merchant marine. And uh, uh, he used to come back from all over the world with these curios and souvenirs. And, Gee, I want to do that. In 1941, I graduated in June, and two weeks later, I was on a ship. And I spent 15 years in the merchant room. Of course, World War II started when I was there. And so I just stayed in there for the whole 15 years. And then uh, what they put me on is uh, I was in the engine room, which are underneath the water. My job was to carry bombs, aerial bombs, from the United States to England for the old Army Air Corps and for the RAF, Real Air Force. And of course, you had to do German submarines there who tried to torpedo us so they didn't go through. So I, I did that. I was attacked 15 times. I never got sunk. And once I got hit with 9,000 tons of bombs, got hit by a torpedo that was a dud and didn't go off. Not only was he attacked 15 times and survived, he survived more than that. Well, I was in D-Day in, in uh, Normandy at Omaha Beach. And for that, that's why I have the French Legion of Honor. Our ship was one of the first ships in. And uh, what had happened at Omaha Beach, the Germans had these cannons and pillboxes. They were supposed to have been bombed out. They never were. Everyone was active. So we come in, they started shelling us. They sunk my sister ship. They hit my ship, and we had 19 casualties. And they were trying to get the troops off. Because we were bringing in the, uh, the engineering group that would try to take the mines out, you know. They were the first ones in. You couldn't have the infantrymen coming in with mines in it. So we were, that's why we were the first ones there. Even after all that he did and all his service with his fellow merchant marines, they were not immediately recognized. And uh, ironically, I was in the merchant marine. The merchant marine this was a non-military group. This was the private ships. And of course, when the war starts out, we're taken over by the Coast Guard. And they tell us where to go and what to take. You know? So... People say, what's a merchant marine? I said, who do you think brought all the ammunition, the trucks, the tanks, the airplanes, in the Pacific and the Atlantic? Who do you think did that? FedEx and UPS? Oh, I need 9,000 tons of bombs. FedEx, can you take it there? The merchant marine did it. And we got no credit for it. We had the highest kills rate Rate, not numbers, in World War II. Merchant Marine lost one out of 26 men. In fact, after the war, I went to join the American Legion. 
They said, you're not a veteran, you can't join. This was so unfair that eventually somebody took it to the Supreme Court. It was like, I think it was in the 90s. They said, this is ridiculous. Of course, they had the highest gold rate. They're veterans. They get all veterans' rights. But by that time, everything was gone. All the GI Bill of Rights and free college, that was all gone. Basically, what they gave us was a flag and a grave. That was their thank you. So that left a bit of taste in our mouth. Eventually, they were considered veterans, and he was awarded with more than just a grave. Donald felt like there was one thing that got him and his brothers through the war. I always claimed my mother, she was just a very religious lady. She prayed three boys through World War II. And each one of us should have been killed a dozen times. So, oh, that's another uh, ironic thing. All during the war, I had one brother in the merchant marine as a captain. And I had two, and the other older brother was in the old Army Air Corps in England. All during the war, and I was in Atlantic, Pacific, Mediterranean, India, every war zone I was in. I never met anybody from home. Nobody from high school, nobody from church, nobody from college, except two people, my two brothers. I was walking down the street in London, and here comes my brother from the Army Air Corps walking down the street. The second one, as I was in a Liberty ship, it was in the Philippine Islands. We pulled into Leyte. When the ship pulls in next to me, it was my brother's ship, the one he was captain of. So we signaled over, and he sent a lifeboat over, and I went over and we visited him. But I mean, of all the people you know, my two brothers. After the war, Donald continued to serve in the Merchant Marines. But then his son was born, and he thought it would be best to come home. And of course, he went back to his ballroom dancing. As far as my dancing, I, I used to go ballroom dancing four or five times a week. Now I go twice a week. You know? And uh, in the villages, most of the men don't know how to dance. They want to play golf. And uh, I love to dance, you know, so I have 26 dance partners that I can dance. <laughs> so, uh, I was playing golf, of course, when I came to the world. And I played with the same three guys. And then I had a hip replacement. When I had the hip replacement, I had to give up golf because I couldn't bend over to tee up the ball anymore. Now I have two hip replacements. So I explained to them, look, guys, I'm through. I'm quitting. Can't go anymore. They said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going back to ballroom dancing. Well, they cracked up. Oh, ballroom dancing. I said, now listen up, dummies, and listen carefully. I have a decision to make. I can either play golf with three fat old men that cheat on their golf scores, or I can be on a dance floor with a beautiful woman in my arms. And no brainer, dummies, no brainer. Oh, but ballroom, that's for wimps. I said, oh? And I'll get out there, and I said, I'll dance to three minutes and not even be breathing heavy. Any one of you fat guys got in there, they'd be calling 911 for an ambulance in 10 seconds. So now who's the wimp here? So that shut them up on that. 
In the end, I was able to ask him how things have changed. So what do you think of my, my generation? Well, good and bad. So there's a lot of good ones out there. There's a lot of lost sheep out there. Too. And I think it breaks my heart is the way they've been moving away from religion, you know. I mean, I'm, uh, I pray every day. And I could write a book on answered prayers, you know. Obviously, some of those answered prayers were from his mom, who, according to Donald, her prayers got them through the war. Thank you for all your service, Donald. You're greatly appreciated. And of course, thanks for taking time to share your story. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories, reporting to you from The Villages, Florida. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our special best of hours. And we recently spent an hour on the life of, and we recently spent an hour on the life and comedy of the great Don Rickles that you can hear in its entirety at ouramericannetwork.org. But here we thought we'd bring you some of the highlights from that hour, starting from the very beginning. Don Rickles was born to Jewish parents in Queens, New York, in 1926. His father, Max emigrated in 1903 with his Lithuanian parents from the Russian Empire, and his mother, Etta, was born in New York City to Austrian immigrant parents. Rickles himself grew up in Jackson Heights, New York. Here, Don tells us about growing up with mom and dad. Well, it's not much of a story, because Jackson Heights, I, I was, uh, the school was right, right opposite where we lived. And I was only child, and we had... Uh, my father was a wonderful kind of guy. He, he passed away very young. Oddly enough, he passed away on the street in New York, and my cousin at that time was an intern at Bellevue. And he was in an ambulance, and he came, not knowing it was my father, and tried to bring him back to life. Anyway, so, and my mother was a woman that did this. Some of these days, she went to a party and just stood up and, you're going to miss me, honey. She loved to <laughs> kid around and entertain. My mother had more of an influence on me than my, my dad. My dad was... It was a wonderful guy, but my mother ran the ship. She was, a, I call it a Jewish pattern. She had full command. She, uh, she'd walk into a room and she'd be noticed. My mother made me laugh when she was dying, rest her soul. She was in the hospital with masks and everything. And she was only in her late 70s in those days, you know. And, uh, and she had emphysema, bad. And I said, Doctor, how is he? He said, oh, darling. I said, can I go in and talk to her? I said, yeah. And it's a true story. And I walked by and said, Mom, dear, it's me. And she lifted up the mask and she said, It's that slow in New Vegas? She always made me feel good. She yelled at me a lot. In other words, I ran away from home once in Jackson Heights. And I forget, she lifted up the window, Dan, and yelled out. I went to the bus stop and she said, You forgot your sweater. It's that slow in Vegas. And that's where Rickles got his humor from. It's called dark humor. By the way, for many Jews, dark humor was a refuge. I mean, when you think about Mel Brooks's masterpiece, uh, many people at the time that the producers came out, and that's his epic film and that got turned into a play, is a mockery of Hitler. And it, it made fun of Nazis, and it got people to laugh about Nazis. And a lot of people were offended at this. But Mel Brooks had the best line. 
He was, I am not going to let Hitler rule over me. We will laugh at Hitler. And those of you who don't like it, don't go and see the producers. That was always the answer. Uh, it isn't these days. On April 6, 2017, Don Rickles died of kidney failure at his home in Beverly Hills, California. He was 90 years old. And that same night, Jimmy Kimmel went on the air live to deliver this heartfelt tribute to his friend. It was a real moment of pure and beautiful human emotion that is rarely seen on TV sets or anywhere else in the media, for that matter. Take a listen. We would always go out to dinner after the show, except for one night. I couldn't go because I was already going to dinner. It was like a late booking. I was going to dinner with my friend Jeff Ross, the comedian. It was his 50th birthday, and he's only in town for like the night. So a few days beforehand, I told Don, I can't go to dinner after the show because I already have plans. We'll go another night. I couldn't tell I was going to another dinner with someone else or he would bust my balls till I had none left. So I was nonspecific. I just said, I can't make it. So we made plans for another night. And after the show, I said goodbye to Don. And I went to dinner with Jeff. And Jeff and I and my cousin Sal are sitting at the table. And who walks in? <laughs> and not only walks in, is seated at the table right next to us. Is Don. He looks at me. He's like, I thought you couldn't go to dinner. And I'm like, it's his birthday. I didn't know. And he hammered me and heckled me through the whole meal. Until finally, I just got up and moved over to his table. And Kimmel continues to pour his heart out with some fond memories he had of Don Rickles. He made fun of everybody. He would come here. He'd make fun of, of me, Guillermo, the band, the audience, the guy who put the microphone on his lapel, the... He'd make fun of the vegetable platter in his dressing room. He, when he'd come to my house, he'd yell about the stairs as if I put them there specifically <laughs> to inconvenience him. Every time I'd see him, he'd go, you still have those stairs? Like, no, we're pole vaulting into the house now, Don. I once took him to Moza, which is Mario Batali's restaurant here. It's a very nice restaurant. We rented the private room in the back. We had food. I invited his friends. It was beautiful. It was very expensive, okay? And I paid for it. At the end of the meal, after the end, at the end of this beautiful meal, he, he says to me, I'll never forget, he goes, I can't believe you took me to a pizza place. <laughs> but he was very sweet. They called him Mr. Warmth as a joke, but he, that was what he was. He would always ask about um, my parents, my kids. Um, when my Uncle Frank passed away, I called him and asked him to be the guest on that show. And uh, which was a top show, man. Um, and he helped all of us through it. He gave me advice, and good advice, not the advice people give you just to hear themselves giving you advice. He would always say, keep my name alive, which um, he'd, he'd tell me to keep his name alive, which I thought was funny because, you know, I was like, you're Don Rickles. You keep my name alive. My <laughs> and in closing, Kimmel shared some of the personal letters that Don Rickles had mailed him over the years. I saved every note he ever sent me. There were like 27 notes and letters from Don, and I want to read a couple of them. Um, by the way, every time he sent me a card, he'd send it in an overnight mail package, and there would be a label on it. It cost $20 every time. He, didn't just, just put, he spent more than $500 on postage alone for me. So here are a few of these very expensive uh, notes. Uh, Dear Jimmy... Thanks so much for inviting me in to your home for dinner. But to be honest, we would have preferred a three-month trip to Venice, Italy. 
Don. Dear Jimmy, thanks so much for the beautiful frame of you and I. Who needs Sinatra? Your picture, your picture of us together is much more important. Please don't show this note to anyone because it could cause harm to me and my family. <laughs> Love, Don. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you so much for the bottles of wine. We've been so busy crushing grapes with our bare feet, <laughs> hoping to have wine for the holidays. And you came to the rescue just in time. Dear Jimmy, what a great, thoughtful gift for Christmas. Such a good Italian. Maybe you should open a deli and start selling salami. <laughs> Maybe I should. Dear Jimmy, uh, we watched your Academy Award show. Uh, Barbara loved every bit of it. But here's what I thought. <laughs> you were on camera too much. All in all, it was okay. We love you, so don't worry. <laughs> this is Our American Stories, and speaking of late-night TV, Don Rickles was well-known for his appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here's the time when Rickles surprised Carson, who was then interviewing Frank Sinatra on The Tonight Show in November of 1976. Rickles started joking with Sinatra about the nefarious dealings he had with the mob. Hey, Frank, it's good to see you. Uh, I, I, I just, I just was hanging around in the hall, and I, I said, Frank Sinatra's here, and I've never met him, you know. <laughs> and I get the chill. You'll excuse us, won't you? Certainly, you? certainly. Marco Mangananzo was hurt. <laughs> Marco Mangananzo? Fambino Bombazzo. Two bullets in the head Thursday. Now this, this you don't believe. Excuse us, Johnny, you're, you're from the Midwest, you're busy going, is the truck loaded? <laughs> Guido says hi. He hasn't had a chance to talk to you. And from Jersey City, your good friend, Bubani Umbazza. <laughs> What's he his name? his car. <laughs> he started his car with your album on, and now he's a highway. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. But I tell you, I'm a Jew and you're an Italian. And here we have what? <laughs> and this is a great Irishman. This is America. Yes, sir. And that's why I just want to say, before we go any further, <laughs> for 14 years, Johnny Carson kept saying, do you really know Frank? And I want you to know, Frank, I worship you and I love you. I really mean this. Because since I'm a kid, I used to blow in girls' ears and hear you go, la da da and do it my way. I need a girl so bad. <laughs> I love my wife, but she's ill. <laughs> but you just got married, Frank. I just can't picture him on the wedding night standing in the room going, And did it all, and I suppose it's my way. And by the way, in this same scene, Sinatra gets one right on the kisser from Don Rickles, not once but twice. And I mean, one of them is like a French kiss, practically. And no one had ever, no one would hug Sinatra. Rickles jumped in there and kissed him on the lips. And Carson fell off his seat. And not much made Carson fall off his seat. When Rickles was done with all that, Sinatra then turned the tables. And he had his own story about Don Rickles. Can I, listen... Can I tell a story about sure. what this man did to me once? You may have known or heard about this. It was a true story. This is a long time ago, long before Don got married. I was eating 
dinner in a restaurant in New York, and uh, uh, I was sitting with, with some friends, and he came over to the table, and he said, Frank, do me a favor, will you? He said, I'm sitting with a very pretty girl, and uh, I'm trying to make out, you know, and he said, I told her I know you, and she really doesn't believe me. Would you stop by the table? I said, all right. I was just about to finish. I was down to the espresso. And I finally he went back, and I walked by the table, and I said, How are you, Don? Nice to see you. He said, Can't you see I'm eating, Frank? What are you doing? <laughs> and there you have it, the life of Don Rickles. And again, that's just an excerpt. You can hear the entire hour on OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is a very special best of Our American Stories.